0: At Amgen, our mission is to serve patients. As a biotechnology pioneer since 1980, Amgen was one of the first companies to realize the promise of this new science by bringing safe and effective novel therapeutics from lab to manufacturing plant to patient. Amgen Therapeutics have changed the practice of medicine, helping millions of people around the world in the fight against cancer, kidney disease, rheumatoid arthritis and other serious illnesses. With a deep and broad pipeline of potential new medicines, Amgen remains committed to moving science forward to dramatically improve people's lives. To learn more about our pioneering science, please visit our website at amgen.com. Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.
1: You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Innovations in Medicine, enhancing the medical community's knowledge of science and biotechnology. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.
2: For more information about Amgen, visit amgen.com. The CDC says it's killing more people than AIDS or emphysema or Parkinson's disease. Can we stop the new strains of Staph aureus bacteria? Today we're talking about what television news likes to call the superbug, strains of Staph aureus resistant to methicillin. On October 16th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that nearly 19,000 people died in the United States in 2005 after infection with virulent drug-resistant strains of Staph aureus. If that estimate is correct, the bacteria are killing more people than HIV or emphysema or even homicide. The CDC estimated that 94,000 patients developed infections from these MRSAs, methicillin-resistant staph aureus strains, and nearly one in five died. It's a serious issue. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Otto to talk about it, a microbiologist from the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Montana, part of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In a recent paper in Nature Medicine, Otto and his colleagues say they found what they think is the mechanism that makes MRSA so virulent, and he's here to tell us about it. Welcome to the program, Dr. Otto. First of all, something about these strains, and there's a difference between the hospital strains of MRSA and the community-acquired strains. Is that right?
1: Yes. Traditionally, these infections only occurred in hospitals, and that's what we call the hospital-associated strains. Now, a couple of years ago, in 1999, there were some deaths in children in Minnesota and North Dakota, actually. And that was the first time we saw MRSA infections without any connection. To healthcare settings, and that's why we call them community associated. And especially these community associated infections of MRSA have been on a dangerous rise more recently.
2: What's causing that? Do we know why they're on the rise?
1: That was the big, big question behind our paper, for example, and a whole lot of other investigations that have been performed more recently. What makes these trains that attack healthy people in the community? more virulent than the hospital-associated strains.
2: Now, tell us, before you started to do your work, tell us what, if anything, was known about that.
1: Actually, there was nothing known. There were some papers that came out that tried to detect these virulence factors on the basis of the genes and the genomes merely. And what came out from that was that there was one factor that's called the Penton-Valentine Leukocydin that was more frequently present in the genome of the community associated strains than the hospital associated strains.
2: This is a toxin.
1: This is a toxin, exactly.
2: For short, we know it as PVL.
1: Exactly. So when about a year ago, my colleague, Frank Leo here from Rocky Mountain Labs and our group, we really wanted to know whether this toxin called PVL affects the virulence of these community-associated strains. We found out that it actually does not. If you look in animal models of infection, you you delete the genes for this PVL from a community-associated Staphylococcus aureus strain, and you compare it to a wild-type strain where it is present. There was actually no difference, telling us that this PVL toxin actually does not affect virulence of community-associated MRSA to a significant extent. And that put us back to to look again, and that's what our current paper is about. So we found another factor.
2: Just to underscore, there was a real misconception about how these, these things worked and what was going on.
1: There was a misconception. I mean, the idea was very valid on the basis of the genomes, but once we really looked with a molecular biology approach, We just could not confirm this theory.
2: Now, uh, before we go on, tell us a little bit about the Rocky Mountain Labs. You're, You're in Hamilton, Montana, is that right? Yes. Now, that's a long way from Bethesda, where the rest of NIH is. What are you doing out there?
1: This is a place where about 100 years ago, almost, a little laboratory was set up to investigate endemic diseases like Rocky Mountain spotted fever and so far. And then over the years, it has been expanded by the NID. I think it has been bought in the 1940s by NID. And then all the, almost all the bacterial research, all the bacterial pathogenesis research that the NIID has is now here in Montana.
2: So some of the newer and scarier things like MRSA are sort of the specialty of, of the lab.
1: They are, and we are also investigating viruses here. So it's, it's a little bit everything about pathogenic bacteria and viruses that's been investigated around here.
2: You told us the story up to the point where you discovered that this toxin PVL was not the culprit. So then you're back to square one. Where did you pick up from there?
1: We have been investigating these peptides that we described uh, in this Nature Medicine, Nature Medicine paper now for quite a while in another bacteria that's more harmless relative of Staph aureus, which is called Staph epidermidis. So there were some similar peptides there and we just decided to take a look in the beginning whether there are similar peptides in Staphylococcus aureus and MRSA. And what we found was that there are similar peptides and they're actually much more active than those that we had found previously in Steph epidermidis. And we also found that these peptides are expressed at extremely high rates in the community-associated strains, while they're only expressed at very low levels in the hospital-associated strains. So the big difference here compared to the previous idea about PVL was that we're not talking about the presence or absence of genes, but we're talking about different levels of expression.
2: We usually think about these things being more of a problem in hospitals, but you're saying that the toxin levels are higher in the community-associated strains, not in the hospital-associated strains.
1: Yes. I mean, the hospital-associated strains are a big problem. They cause all these hospital-associated infections that MRSA was known for. But now, in addition to that, we, we found that MRSA can cause trouble outside of the healthcare settings too. And and what it does there, it, it attacks healthy people. So it has to be somehow more aggressive than the strains in the hospitals that usually attack immunocompromised people or people after surgery or things like that. And we wanted to know... What makes these strains more aggressive? And this is where these peptides come in.
2: In other words, outside the hospital, the bacteria with the more potent toxin are are attacking healthy people.
1: Exactly. Young athletes, football players, there were outbreaks in prisons in children in high schools and so forth.
2: For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to REACH MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We're talking to Dr. Michael Otto of the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Montana about deadly new strains of methicillin resistant staph, aureus MRSA. So you've looked at these new toxins now. What are they called and, and what have you learned about them?
1: We call them phenol soluble modulins, which is not so fortunate name. It's just what we found is that they have an exceptional capacity to kill human neutrophils, which are the main players by which the human immune system gets rid of the bacteria in the first place. How do they kill neutrophils? Basically, they make holes in them. They're, they're pore-forming peptides. They make holes, and once there are holes in, in, in the cells, then vital molecules flow out of the cell and the cell dies.
2: So that allows the bacteria then in turn to spread more easily because it's not being fought off by neutrophils? Exactly.
1: It's basically, from the point of view of the bacteria, getting rid of the main enemy in the human body.
2: It's a little bit, I mean, I know it's completely different from HIV, but it's a little bit that same sort of thing of attacking the actual defenders uh, in causing the infection. It
1: is to some extent similar. A main difference would be that neutrophils are part of the innate immune system, so this is something that happens just right after infection. Whereas HIV obviously takes more time and HIV attacks T cells, which are part of the adaptive immune system and something that only comes into play after a week at minimum or so.
2: Now, you reported something also that's sort of insidious and, and crafty on the part of evolution, I guess, that the bacteria produce more toxin at a time when they somehow sense that the immune system is weak or or vulnerable. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: This is something that we found that the production of the bacteria is actually under control of what we call quorum sensing system. That means that the bacteria wait with the production of these peptides until there are enough bacteria around so they can really produce considerable amounts of these
2: peptides. They're in the body at this point.
1: They're in the body already. So if there there are many together then they produce the peptide at higher rates. The sense of that is that if they produce the peptides already at relatively high rates, while there are not so many of the bacteria around, then the whole thing turns around. Then the neutrophils, they actually have the capacity to sense these peptides. Then they would come and eliminate the bacteria because at that time, the bacteria are just not enough yet to produce enough of of this deadly toxin.
2: Now, how will this research help us think about controlling these things, preventing infections? What, What are the medical implications, would you say?
1: The medical implications are that one might think of producing antibodies that are directly eliminating these peptides, for example. This is nothing that would work as a standalone drug or so, but it's something that definitely could be thought about being given together with a conventional antibiotic to boost the efficiency of this antibiotic and just makes it easier to get rid of the infection.
2: Okay, but it wouldn't have any implication particularly for diagnosis. Is there a public health implication about how to think about these things more broadly? The public health implication,
1: I think we, we have enough tools already to detect the community-associated strains with things like PCR or so and There are several markers in the genome that we can make use of. It does not actually advance detection of, of these strains very much. We have the tools already for that.
2: This is a case here where we're talking about very basic research on how these bugs work and how they do their damage and so forth. I think it's always instructive to think about how basic research functions in the healthcare system, really, and why this is important even if the immediate medical implications may not be so clear.
1: The most important thing here was to understand what makes these strains real. And of course, that's only basic research, but there are the implications for possibly for drug development. And from a public health standpoint, of course, it's the mission of the NIA to do exactly this, to get basic research to a level where drug development companies can then come into the game and really produce a drug in the end.
2: Well, that brings us to a close. We've been talking about methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or MRSA, with Dr. Michael Otto a microbiologist at the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Montana, part of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Otto. Thank you. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. You've been listening to Innovations in Medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you'll find a program guide, podcasts of past shows, and other little tidbits we think you'll like, or send us an email at innovations at ReachMD.com. And thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Innovations in Medicine
1: on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.